Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. This year marks the 150th anniversary of the Paris Commune, a radical political and social experiment that's a formative event in the history of the left. It's also a source of inspiration, not just famously for Karl Marx, but for many other socialists, anarchists, and later on communists. And to help us mark this occasion, I'm absolutely delighted to be able to introduce to you tonight Professor John Merriman. John Merriman is Professor of History at Yale University, where he's taught modern French history and also modern European history for well over 40 years. He's been a visiting professor at numerous universities in France and won awards for his teaching and from other universities in other countries. In 2018, he received the American Historical Association's Award for a career of distinguished scholarship. And you can see that in the work that he's published. He's published, I mean, I think I counted correctly, uh, so many of them. I, I counted, I think he's published at least nine monographs as well as other publications, beginning with The Agony of the Republic, a study of repression of the left in revolutionary France. Amongst his more recent books are The Dynamite Club, an exploration of the origins of modern terrorism, The Ballad of the Anarchist Bandits, and especially important for us tonight, Massacre, The Life and Death of the Paris Commune, a book which has been translated into Portuguese, Dutch, Spanish and Chinese, as well, of course, as appearing in English and French. In addition to this, he has a very much used two-volume textbook on the history of modern Europe since the Renaissance, which is now, I think, in its fourth edition and has been on the reading list for a quarter of a century. Well, drawing on this experience, this general experience of French social history and this specific uh, knowledge about the Paris Commune, John Merriman is going to be telling us something about the story of the Commune and considering its consequences and its legacy. He's going to be talking for about 45 minutes and then we'll turn it over to you for questions and discussion. If you have questions, do put them in the Q&A and we'll we'll select a a number of them and and put them to the speaker. Before we do that, can I ask you at least, metaphorically at least, to join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor John Merriman. So over to you, John. Okay, thank you very much, Robin. Uh, Thank you all for coming to listen to me. I hope hope you're all doing well. Um, The Paris Commune, I like to say, you know, how I ended up, I taught about the Paris Commune. I'd gone up to the Mur des Federés, the Wall of the Federés in uh, Père Lachaise Cemetery, of course, and taken my kids up there to, 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 to see where uh, where Cominard, uh were forced to dig a huge grave before they were shot and their bodies dumped into the grave. Uh, the commune remains part of the collective memory, important in the collective memory of the left uh, in France. I was a uh, much younger guy then, younger dude then, and the 100th anniversary of the Paris Commune when I was in Paris. Uh, I live in Paris, or we live in South France now in Ardèche, but I, Spent half my adult life living in France, and so the commune is part of important part of my collective memory, I guess. Um, but I'd never intended to write a book about the Paris Commune, and I, I ended up doing this uh, in the following way. And my book is less about the commune than it is about Bloody Week. Uh, thus, it's called Massacre. Uh, one of the books I wrote, a uh, book that Robin was kind enough to mention, is Dynamite Club which is about the origins of of modern terror. And I followed a a man named Emile Henry, who arguably was the first terrorist. He was an anarchist. Most anarchists were not terrorists. They were gentle people, but Emile Henry was a killer. And if you're gonna follow somebody around for two years and write a book about him, it's good to pick somebody who only lived to be 21 
it's a shorter book. He put his head through the little window and was guillotined uh, because of the, the bombs that he placed and the people that he killed. But I was interested in what made him a militant and indeed a, a killer. But again, to repeat, most anarchists were not a terrorist. His father had been a communard, had been condemned to death in absentia, and had got had the good fortune to escape. And he escaped to Barcelona. Uh, and uh, Emile Henri was born in, in Barcelona uh, in 1872, that's a year after the commune. So Emile Henri's father had seen state terror up close. And the commune, one of the most important things about Bloody Week, that is May 21st to 28th, and why I wrote the book, is that it anticipates some of the horrors of the 20th century when you could be killed for just being who you were, for being Albanian or for being Armenian rather in 1895 or in 1915, you know, when the Turks marched, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of, uh, of Armenians out into the desert where they died or because you're a communist uh, in the 1920s or 30s or, you know, above all, because you were Jewish uh, in, in World War II and even before. And in, during Bloody Week, you could be killed for just being a working class bloke. And so this led me to write a book about massacre, the massacre, the Paris Commune, because that's what it was. So just a couple words to put Bloody Week in the context. A few words about the commune. The commune didn't just appear. It wasn't, it was obviously, um, it followed the Franco-Prussian War when the, you know, the, the French get blown out by the Prussians in, uh, in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. But it was anticipated by a mobilization of working class people in France at the end, in the last years of the Second Empire. That is that of the sleazy Napoleon III. Uh, strikes became legal in France in 1864. You had a mobilization. The first real wave, major wave of strikes in France was in 1864, following the law that legalized strikes. From 1868, in 1868, you had a public a reunion law that meant that you could actually meet uh, without the permission of the prefect. And between 1868 and 1870, there were all sorts of, of meetings sort of the apprenticeship of ordinary people in the big warehouses or hangar uh, on the edge of Paris and working class Paris. And that was the apprenticeship of the radical socialist, socialist republic. And uh, so that was the origins of the Paris Commune. There's an excellent book. You know, one of the odd things, is, if you know anything about what happens during the Commune, the Hotel de Ville was burned and it was subsequently rebuilt the town hall. So it looks quite a bit like it did before, before eight, uh, May 15th, 1871. But there were all sorts of documents that were saved and were discovered in the early 1970s. And there's a very good book published by three, I won't give you the name, well, Dalotel Frère Alain Fort, called Aux Origines la Commune, the origins of the commune. That was, the, the police copied took copious notes of these public meetings, which were the apprenticeship of the radical republic. And so th these are fantastic sources about the politicization of working class uh, uh, Parisians and, uh, and working class folks in other cities uh, as well in France. And so uh, this is mobilization of working class uh, Parisians and with strikes uh, in January of 1870, uh, before the Franco-Prussian War, anticipates uh, the Paris Commune. And one thing, and if we could have the, the map of Paris, now one of the points upon which I wanna assist, I've got all the, all the images here, I wish I could only see the map, but it doesn't matter, I'll hold it close to my head. One of the, the important th aspects of the Paris, two of the important aspects of, of the Paris Commune are linked. One is that the Paris Commune was the work of ordinary people. 
uh, uh, working class people, but specifically working class people in people's Paris, that is in Eastern Paris. Now, as, as most of you know, Paris was rebuilt by Osman, my late friend, great British historian, just a wonderful writer, a raconteur, uh, drinker, Richard Cobb, uh, castigated uh, Alsa uh, uh, Baron George Osman, Alsatian Alsa Attila, as bulldozers are the equivalent plowed through uh, Ro uh, Romanesque chapels and built the boulevards that now are the center, became the center of, of, of the tourists uh, of Paris, uh, going through uh, working class housing and knocking them uh, down. And what, what the Paris Commune was once described by an historian called uh, Jacques Rougerie uh, as the revenge of the expelled. Uh, we can ask whether the Paris Commune was, was the work of ordinary Parisians who had been during the rebuilding of Paris in the 1850s and 60s expelled from their houses and, and who moved in huge numbers forced out of the third and the fourth arrondissement now, I mean, in the Marais, uh, uh, into, um, into the, the 11th arrondissement, uh, the numbers don't matter, the 12th arrondissement, the 18th, 19th, and 20th arrondissement. In other words, uh, Paris of Eastern Paris. Uh, but you can take the Boulevard Saint-Michel and its continuation uh, on the right bank, the Boulevard Saint-Denis and the Boulevard Strasbourg, which goes up to the Gare de, de l'Est, the station of the East. And you can see that as, as a divider really between people's Paris of Eastern Paris and uh, Paris of more prosperous people in, in the Western uh, neighborhoods. And so, you know, the, the Boulevard Saint-Michel and extend, its extension, uh, Boulevard Saint-Denis, Boulevard Sebastopol do represent uh, kind of a, 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 you know, it symbolizes this division. Now the Paris Commune was a function of working class neighborhoods. It was, if Napoleon III and Osman had built the big boulevards that, uh, down which tourists flocked, uh, that the working class people lived in neighborhoods uh, characterized by very small streets, streets that were small enough to build barricades across. One of the reasons that Osman and Napoleon III built boulevards is that in principle, you couldn't build a barricade across a boulevard. And, bull and barricades have been part of the Parisian scene since the 16th century. Uh, indeed, barricades could be seen going up in August of 1944 as Parisians rose up uh, against uh, the Germans. But the association between les classes populaires, between ordinary people and neighborhood uh, in the, the, the quartier populaire in, in the Eastern parts of Paris was essential. And that's the existence, uh, explains the militancy of the Paris Commune. Now the Paris Commune uh, began in Montmartre, Montmartre, you know, now you think of it as being a tourist trap, which it is, and it has the, the uh, Basilica of Sacré-Cœur, and not because of its of the architectural form, uh, which is, has lots of Byzantine elements. You can find that in the cathedral in Perigueux and in other places in, in Saint, other places in southwestern France. That's not why I object to it. It was built there to commemorate the destruction of the communards, the massacre of the communards. You know, for me, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's a place uh, that, that shouldn't be there. Uh, it was built to, uh, to salute the massacre of the Corbinard. But anyway, Montmartre, uh, now, as I said, a tourist trap uh, full of just terrible painters uh, was where the commune began. And Montmartre is, is on the margins of urban life uh, in the period we're talking about. Um, and uh, the you know, ordinary people who had been pushed out to the periphery, Montmartre was still had its rural elements. It's still a tiny vineyard that sells terrible wine that people pay huge amounts of money for so they can have the label 
of a wine actually produced in Montmartre. But so the association between uh, uh, the, the Parisian periphery and the working class insurgency is terribly important. Now on the slides, I hope you can see this slide. Can you go to, can you see this slide with the cannons on Montmartre? Is that possible? You there, is someone there? Yep, there's a slide with cannons now. Can you see that? Okay. Uh, you, the, the one before that was the awful Thiers, Adolphe Thiers. Uh, but but the, you can see that why it was that on the, the 18th, uh, it was the 18th or 17th, I guess it was the 18th of March, why uh, Thiers sent the troops up to get the cannons, because from Montmartre, the cannons dominate Paris. And so that's really how uh, this all started. If you go further down, uh, you can see a, just a great, just a fantastic image of uh, of the cannons, um, not the huge massive cannons, but of a single cannon looking over uh, over Paris. Uh, so the that that explains uh, to a great extent why uh, uh, Thiers sent troops uh, to get uh, the cannons. So it's it's these. East, these eastern neighborhood, neighborhoods, including the 13th arrondissement, uh, which is on the left bank, uh, that became uh, the centers of, of militancy uh, between 1868 and 1871. It was in these places that you had these, uh, these vigorous uh, political debates um, made possible by the law on public that allowed public meetings of uh, 18 uh, uh, 60 uh, I mean of, of 1868 uh, um, so uh, that, that's uh, absolutely essential now the boulevards were used by one of the Osman says this in his memoirs um, that that there were three reasons that that Osman, under the the, the command of, of Napoleon III, built the boulevards. One was to bring more light and air into the city and more sewers. Paris already had sewer system. It was inadequate. Uh, and so that's one reason why the boulevards uh, were uh, built. Um, uh, to give you one example that's important in, in the, the repression of the commune, if you know the Rue de Rivoli, uh, Rue de Rivoli, Rivoli that parallels the Seine on the right bank was uh, started by Napoleon I, but he was fighting wars all the time, getting hundreds of thousands of people killed, so he didn't have time to finish it. So uh, his nephew, Napoleon III, completed the Rue de Rivoli, which goes to all the way down, becomes the Rue Saint-Antoine, right down to the Bastille. And so to bring in more air and light was one reason. The second reason for the boulevards of Osman uh, was to free the flow of capital. Uh, and so if the intersection of Boulevard of, of what became Boulevard Saint-Michel uh, and the Seine, and, and, and then the, across the river, the Rue Saint, the Boulevard uh, Saint-Denis, uh, was the important, most important intersection uh, at the beginning of the period we're talking about, um, I mean, it, well, it, in the 1850s. Uh, by 1871, it had moved further uh, to the west, uh, and, and it's on the boulevards that the banks of Paris were to be found. Uh, our two banks, the Crédit Agricole uh, and uh, the, the BNP Paribas, the headquarters are on uh on the boulevards that were created for specifically that purpose. So uh, to free the flow of capital. If you think of the department stores, the department stores, if those of, you're in London, so you know Harrods, and Harrods starts at the same time as the Beaumarché, and the Beaumarché is magnificent. It's still there. It was what Zola called the Cathedral of Modernity. Uh, and the Beaumarché was on this convergence of boulevards uh, in um, the sixth arrondissement of Paris. And so it's not a coincidence uh, that, the, that the boulevards, uh, you know, were, were, the, were, were exactly the points where 
the new where the, the boulevards that preceded the you know Nouvelle Galerie. I mean the department stores that preceded the Galerie Lafayette and the Beaumarchais, which is still there, uh, were placed. So that was the second reason for these boulevards. Um, and the third uh, is that uh, repeating myself is you couldn't build in principle barricades across boulevards because uh, they were too wide. Uh, and so it was down the Rue de Rivoli that the troops of Napoleon, I mean, uh, uh, the, the troops of, of uh, the provisional government, uh, Adolphe uh, Thiers, uh, would, would, would march uh, quickly, killing along the way, uh, going all the way down to the Hotel de Ville uh, and beyond it, and then turning left and going up into the working class neighborhoods around République, up into Belleville um, and uh, to Montmartre, uh, up the Avenue des Pyrénées uh, and, and killing ordinary people. And as I said before, you could be killed for just being who you were. I tell a story in the book Massacre, um, the, the two a policemen stop a, a man walking along the Boulevard Saint-Michel and they say, uh, what do, who are you and, and what do you do? And he says, well, you know, I, uh, I'm walking down the street. I'm going home. And then they said to him, using the past tense, what did you do in life? Qu'est-ce que tu as fait dans la vie? Using the past tense, because this dude wasn't going to be there very much longer. And he said, I'm a mason. And he held out his hands. And his hands weren't the soft hand of someone's hands of someone who types, uh, but he, they were working man's hands. He was a mason. He had rough hands. And so they said, well, so it's masons who are going to run France now. And they shot him dead right there. Dead because he was a working class guy killed because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. A working class guy from people's Paris. But there were some lucky stories too. This is just a, you know, it's a good story worth telling. Um, they were they put up these um, um, these courts, these court martial places. Uh, one was in the Parc Monceau, one was at Châtelet, one was in the Garden of Luxembourg. You've probably gone to the Garden of Luxembourg. We took our kid, our apartment. We have an apartment in the Third Dironde Small, uh, though we live in Alpes now, um, and but up in Paris a lot. And we used to take our kids the gardens of Luxembourg, and people take their kids there they have little sailboats in the in the in, in the ponds well next time you go there go and look at the wall and it was against that wall that hundreds of people were slaughtered were executed by the forces of order as they like to call themselves uh, during bloody week uh, people would be hauled into the senate which would be, became a court for a one-minute trial and then in most cases the verdict was classé, which was meant the person was to be killed. And where, where were they executed? They were executed in, in the Garden of Luxembourg, you know, full of little sailboats and little children and families on a Sunday picnicking now. Um, but then it was, a, it was a, a place of death. And this one guy was waiting in line, not for a, a theater ticket or a movie ticket in, in the Latin Quarter, but to be killed. He was waiting in line. He's number 10, he's number nine, he's number eight. And you could hear that the machine guns and they were using Gatling guns, which were first used in the American Civil War to kill people, to shoot them. And he was, he's waiting to be killed. And the guy, the guard next to him said to him, kiss it to a fait dans la vie. Again, the use of the past tense. What did you do in life? Cause he's going to be killed. And he said, he had a, a an armband that said he was in the Red Cross. The Red Cross was created in Geneva in 1864. And he got ended up with the band hoping to save himself. He was a journalist. And he said, I'm a medical student. And, and it, the guard said, well, I am too. Let me see what I can do. And he raced off looking for his, his the sergeant. And he came back, he said, I can't find him. So then it was number seven, number six. And the bullets are being, are, you know, kill, taking lives. And then he said, I'm going to go find another one. And he came back and he was freed. 
And so he and the two people who arrested him and his savior are having drinks in a bar in a cafe next to the Jardin de Luxembourg. And whenever I write about something, I have to go there. And so I've gone and had drinks in that very same bar, which is still there. So serendipity, you could get lucky. You could, and, and some people did, uh, but mostly people didn't get lucky. Now, how many people were killed, were executed during, uh, during Bloody Week? The official toll was 17,000. My colleague and friend, uh, now retired uh, from St. John's at Cambridge, Robert Toombs, who is the best military history of the Paris Commune. By the way, the best general history of the Paris Commune is still, uh, it's still in print as Stuart Edwards. I think it's, well, it's in the libraries anyway, who is now a deceased, I think, who is a Brit was a British historian, maybe still alive, I hope he's still alive. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, there we go. But the official figure was 17,000. Uh, Robert is trying to lower it. He thinks it's only 8,000, 8,500, something like that. That's still a lot. I think the official, I think 15,000 is about it because lots of people perished in the flames, in the fires, and houses burned, or lots of people, the corpses were taken outside of Paris to be buried. Now, by the way, why were so many houses burned in Paris? Now, after the, the you know, when the, during the, the Republic of the Moral Order, the right-wing republic that followed the Paris Commune, the crushing of the communard, uh, the, 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 the view uh, that was given as well, uh, it was the fires were set by the communard and particularly by female communard. And that's important to talk about for a second, which I will in a minute. In fact, that's not true because the fires were mostly set by the so-called forces of order uh, because they, they burned buildings, uh, you know, that were next to, uh, you know, that were next to the barricades and that sort of thing to keep the communard from building more barricades, uh, et cetera. So, uh, but the, the rumor was, uh, and it was perpetuated by, um, by the conservative regime after the commune, is that it was female incendiaries, who were the petroleuses, female incendiaries, who with their children were throwing incendiary devices into the houses of the wealthy and burning them down. Now, in fact, there wasn't a single petroleuse. This is a total myth. But why was this a myth that the right wing needed? Um, they needed it because one of the aspects of the commune that's terribly important is the role of women in the Paris commune. Uh, and and uh, uh, there weren't female incendiaries, but they were a female communard. And, and uh, Louise Michel is certainly the most famous. She ends up, they couldn't kill Louise Michel, so they sent her off to New Caledonia. And because she saw state terror up close, she returns to France from Nouvelle, uh, New Caledonia, Nouvelle Caledonie, where she was a teacher. And she becomes an anarchist because she saw state terror up close. And she leads the first May Day demonstrations. She's one of the people I most, I most admire. So, there weren't any female incendiaries, but this was a myth in order to, you know, to justify the hatred of the female communard who fought in the barricades or who provided you know, medical services for communard that were shot. Uh, so uh, the role of women is terribly important. Sometimes, you know, and when I've done, did, done various books I've, I, with Canadian with a Canadian broadcasting system, I've gone around with this guy, a journalist, and, and to go to various places in Paris, and I describe what we're seeing, you know, go to the Opera for this and that. And so, uh, you know, I took him in this, the church of Saint Eustache, which is one of the most beautiful churches in Paris, beautiful Gothic church right in the center of Paris. Now it's surrounded by just nothing, you know, because they knocked down Leal and it's just a bunch of stores going broke uh, down in the you know, three stores of three stories basement of stores going broke. But I took him in there and was explaining that, that during the Paris Commune, the female clubs met in those churches. 
Why do they meet in churches? You didn't meet in churches because you were religious, though maybe some of them were. That's quite possible. You met in churches because churches, no matter if you're talking about a village of 350 like our village, or if you're talking about Paris, which had 2 million at the time of 1871, churches were the largest places uh, that existed. And so you could have your political meetings there. And so I, when I took him to this journalist to San Eustache, I was describing women going up and standing in the pulpit where the priests uh, spoke on Sunday during mass, during sermons, and speaking and demanding women's rights, demanding uh, child uh, nurses, nurseries uh, for working class women, uh, uh, demanding the right to vote, demanding the right to access to divorce. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, the role of women in the Paris Commune uh, was uh, terribly important. And some women uh, died on the barricades, uh, though overwhelmingly <clears throat> the number of people killed, it was men who uh, were killed overwhelmingly uh, fighting for the Paris Commune. How many people fought? Well, in the Paris National Guard, all males between, is it 18 or 21 and 45, um, were supposed to be in the National Guard. So the nominally there were 250,000 people in the Parisian National Guard, which had been armed and partially uniformed during the siege of Paris by the Prussians. Uh, that lasts uh, from September 1870 until January 1871. But in fact, only, well, the highest estimate that would be even reasonable would be say 30,000 men fought for the Paris Commune. It's quite likely that the real number was somewhere between 10 and 20,000. So if you can see uh, the slide uh, of, of, these of, the, of these cannons, uh, the slides of these barricades, uh, these are just terrific slides. Uh, and these are the people uh, who uh, were fighting for the commune. They're wonderful images, sad images of, of, of uh, the Paris commune. Why they're sad images. If you can see the one that's number nine, I don't know if ones you have are numbered. We'll look at number 11, because you can see a woman, you can see a woman exactly what I was uh, talking about, speaking from uh, the pulpit uh, in a church. But if you look at number nine, you see uh, one of the cannons uh, on the walls around Paris. And look how young, those are, those are teenagers who are defending Paris. And you look at that, it's very sad because it's just like you see the, the pictures of at, at uh, Bonhoeff in, in, in Berlin in 1914 in August or at the Gare du Nord or the Gare de l'Est in Paris at the same time of the, the people who are having a drink and getting on the trains and they're gonna be home before Easter. I mean, before Christmas, right? Yeah, right. They're going to be dead. Uh, in 1914, uh, 1915, half of the French uh, men who entered the army died uh, in 1914 or 1915. So when you look at this picture of these boys, I mean, these are boys. These are these are teenagers uh, guarding Paris. You look at them and they're going to be dead. They're not going to survive. They're not going to be there uh, in a matter of of weeks. Oh, these are great images. Look at that. I hope you can see these things. Look at the the the, the barricades there. Oh, that's a great one. The knocking down of the, um, the tower with Napoleon statue in the Place Vendôme. That's a good one too. And then if you can see number sixteen, I don't know if you can, uh, but it's the Rue de Rivoli. It's exactly what I was talking about. Uh, and you can see all the the burned out buildings uh, from the fighting. And ironically, from it's one of the ironies of, of the whole thing is that the, uh, because the, the Versailles troops, the most of their cannons were outside the western walls of Paris uh, uh, towards Versailles, uh, that the sh as they shelled Paris, they most, the shells mostly fell on western Paris and, uh, and, and blew up uh, the houses of the wealthy. So this picture, if, I, if I'm talking about something I hope you can see on the Rue de Rivoli, uh, was the result of the fighting as Thiers' troops are pushing their way down uh, the Rue de Rivoli, uh, past soon the Hotel de Ville, which is further 
uh, you can't see it here, and then turning left and going up and killing people in the working uh, class uh, neighborhoods. So social geography and social class are essential in uh, the Paris Commune. The last shots fired by any communaire are on a very small street up uh, in what now is the 10th arrondissement, uh, which was at this time, well, it's still the, the, uh, the 10th arrondissement. The arrondissement named the numbers changed in 1860 uh, when they annexed the inner suburbs. And they did that for tax reasons and also for reasons of policing. So area, uh, places like Grenelle and Vaugirard and Belleville and Montmartre were next to Paris. Uh, and so at that point, the, the arrondissement uh, got the numbers uh, that they still have. There being uh, uh, 20, uh, 20 of them. Uh, usually, you know, people don't identify themselves by what arrondissement they're from. Uh, if someone's wealthy, you might say, oh, vous êtes du 16e, you're from the 16th. Because for a long time, the 16th arrondissement, uh, the western arrondissement of the direction of Versailles uh, was uh, the wealthiest. Now it's not. The wealthiest is the seventh um, on, the, on the left bank. No, it's the sixth now, followed uh, by the seventh. Uh, but there's still a strong relationship between, uh, between uh, you know, social geography and, and income uh, and, uh, uh, and all that. So that's important uh, to note uh, as well. So, uh, voila, what else to say? Oh, yes, uh, back, back to the, the, the women. Um, they weren't going to, and they didn't just line up women against the wall and, and, and shoot them. What they did is they chained them together. Uh, and forced them to walk to Versailles. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, that's a long walk. And some of them didn't make it, died along the way. And as they got toward, through the fancy neighborhoods, uh, women of means, wealthy women, came down and mocked them. And there's all sorts of, you know, hit them with their umbrellas and this sort of thing. And and there's all sorts of accounts of how they mock their, their physical characteristics, comparing them to animals. That one looks like a, a tiger, doesn't she? Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and making fun of the way they looked. They looked and making fun of their poverty. And so they marched them out to a place called Satori, uh, where they were put in prison. And many of them were put on trial and condemned to prison or to other uh, terms of, uh, you know, of not of service, but to labor and, and this sort of thing. But they didn't uh, execute them uh, the way uh, that, you know, in one of the uh, killing fields uh, of, of Paris. Um, that that uh, another one it's worth mentioning is um, it, it, the Châtelet was one of the courts at, at Châtelet which is the old uh, theater district of Paris. Um, and so when they were, they were condemned to death, they were taken behind the hotel, the town hall, the Hotel de Ville, uh, to the barracks of Lobo, L-O-B-A-U. Uh, and they were killed there. And I remember once I'd been invited on some occasion, a friend whose book had won a big award to drink champagne and the Hotel de Ville, and I'd never even been inside the town hall before, and I certainly do, do love champagne, and wasn't going to turn down that invitation. And I remember looking out the window from the town hall and looking at the, the, the barracks of Lobo and thinking about all the people who were executed there uh, during and after Bloody Week of 1871. And so that's one reason why for the left, and I, I should terminate, I guess now about now, so there's time for questions. Uh, that's why the commune is such, has important resonance, uh, resonance uh, in the collective memory of the left. Even Nicolas 
Sarkozy, you know, the president of France, who, uh, you know, the son of a Hungarian immigrant, but, uh, who, but someone who hates immigrants and called uh, uh, immigrant settlers the, the Rakai, the scum of the earth, who should be fumigated. Even Sarkozy uh, referred to the commune as part of, uh, I shouldn't have made that political comment, so I hope I didn't offend anybody, but don't be. Um, even he referred to the commune as part of, of, of an important part of the history of, of, of France. Um, there, there aren't places that, of, of commemoration, really. If you go to the Place de la Bastille, most people who see the tower in the middle of the Place de la Bastille uh, think it has something to do with the revolution. It doesn't. The, the Bastille was knocked down only a few years after the 14th of July, 1789. Uh, the tower there lists the victims, those killed in the July days of 1830, yet another a revolution. Uh, if you want to go looking for uh, remnants of the Paris Commune, you have to know already a lot about it and to go and find the neighborhoods where people perished. Uh, the neighborhoods that were particularly victimized by the forces of order. They targeted Belleville because Belleville in the northeastern part of Paris was identified with militancy during the last years of the Second Empire. So if you were lived in Belleville and the forces of order came in and you were a working person, you were toast, uh, French toast, I guess, would make a bad pun, um, up against the wall because of the identity of Belleville as being the, the kind of peripheral place full of peripheral people. Again, uh, social geography is absolutely key uh, in all of this. And so I remember you know, I, I go up to, I said this, I go up to Père Lachaise Cemetery, the wall of the Federé once in a while. I took my kids up there uh, when they were much younger uh, to explain what had happened there. And you, you know, you look down you, at the wall of the Federé and people bring flowers sometimes that you can almost hear Thomas Wolfe, oh lost and by the wind grieved, ghost come back again. Because the, the commune does mean something in the history uh, of the left. And of course you can, there's all sorts of, of examples in subsequent times in French history. 1936, the biggest strike wave in French history. Uh, the origins of the Popular Front, the biggest strike wave until 1968. Uh, reference to the commune were, were frequent, were classic. 1968, the only year I haven't spent at least four months in France since 1967 when I first went to France. 1968, the failed or the non-revolution of 1968 so much of the graffiti revolved around the memory of the Paris Commune. Uh, and their books that published the graffiti, published the images, the posters. And so the Commune uh, yeah, remains uh, important uh, in, in, you know, for the left in France, but it also did uh, for, in the first years after the Commune uh, for the right, because this would, would show would, would happen if uppity women, God forbid, and uppity men, workers, try to put forward their right. You never know what might happen. They might demand the right to vote uh, for, uh, for women or, or this sort of thing. Uh, so uh, the commune still uh, means a great deal to lots of people, uh, indeed. Uh, and I guess I'm one of them. So I'm happy to um, answer any questions you might have. Hope this wasn't all to hit or miss, um, and I hope I made uh, the most essential points that I tried to, to make. Listen, thank you very much for that. Um, I might just um, start by asking you a couple of questions and then turn it over to the audience. If you do have questions, please um, feel free to add them in the Q&A and we can put them to Professor Merriman. I just wanted to start by asking you a bit about why the commune has been an inspiration for the left over time. The story you've told us is largely a story of, of trauma, of defeat, albeit of a kind of glorious defeat. 
Do you think the inspiration is largely because of that or is it rather because of the experimental systems of government and of social order which were, albeit very briefly, attempted? Well, both, but, you know, they didn't have, you know, one of the, amazing, one of the most amazing things is as the Versailles government, the original government was shelling Paris. They were shelling Paris. Gustave Courbet, the painter, who had been elected mayor of the sixth arrondissement, they were meeting, you know, discussing social reforms. Now, in, in a very short time, the Paris Commune lasts from, you know, March 18th to Bloody Week. So that's, you were talk, talking about just a matter of weeks. They didn't have time to do very much. Uh, and they, they didn't agree on everything. You know, the communard, you know, included Jacobin in the tradition of the French Revolution, who were still state centralizers. It included moderate Republicans who just wanted Paris to have the right to have a mayor. Paris didn't have a mayor uh, for, briefly in 1848, but not again until Jacques Chirac, uh, for better or for worse, certainly for worse, uh, in, beginning in 1977. I mean, he should be in jail. Well, he's dead now, but he was condemned to jail, but you can't put an old dude in jail like that, so they didn't uh, do it. Uh, but uh, it, there were anarchists. Uh, not, I wouldn't exaggerate the number of anarchists, but there were anarchists. Uh, there were democratic socialists uh, who, were far to, who were to the left of the Jacobin. So it was a real mix of people, and they didn't agree on everything. They debated, even as the cannons are, the shells are getting closer to where they're debating. They're debating, you know, the night before the troops pour in uh, uh, on May 21st, uh, 1871, you know, they're debating measures of social reform. It's notorious that, you know, they ban night baking. Uh, the upper classes and other people too like to have their hot croissant in the morning. And so bakers had to start baking at three in the morning, whatever. So they ban night baking and they, a couple other very minor um, minor uh, cases of, of laws that they pass, but they didn't have time to do very much. Uh, but the, the, to, to make a long story short, uh, what they, you know, there was, what's important is that they tried to do something. You had these people, you had these arrondissement um, uh, committees meeting, uh, talking about social welfare, what could be done to help the poor, you had groups of women uh, helping uh, poor women. Uh, you have these National Guard committees that were represented a kind of a, uh, sort of what Trotsky would call dual sovereignty, along with the government of the commune, uh, the National Guard committees, and then the commune being the two aspects of dual sovereignty. So they didn't have time to do very much. Uh, and you know, had they survived, they would have tried to do more. You know, these, they, they also, did they think they could win? Well, they had no chance of winning, but they, they, many of them labored in the illusion that the Lyon and Marseille and the Limoges, uh, you know, which had strong radical condition, uh, traditions were gonna come and, and rescue them. And so to the end, they thought that, that somebody was gonna come and rescue them, but nobody ever did. There were communes uh, that varied in what, the, what the situations varied uh, in Saint-Étienne, which is France's Manchester, really, uh, rapid growing city, industrial city in France in the 19th century, as you may know, uh, in Limoges, a town in which I spent too much time. Um, I wrote a book on Limoges. I spent a lot of time in Limoges, which will never be confused with La Rochelle or Toulouse or Paris or Strasbourg. Um, and in Le Cruzot, there was another one. I uh, attempted uh, commune there. Uh, and in Narbonne, uh, Narbonne, as they say down there, uh, and in Toulouse, uh, there were attempts to start uh, the equivalents of the Paris Commune. And, but the, so the people, you know, they're waiting and talking about reforms and what, how we can make the world better. And then they, uh, uh, they're waiting for somebody to come and save them. Uh, so, but they only did very few minor reforms. I mentioned Courbet a couple of times, a great naturalist painter born in Arnon in, um, in the Doubs. Uh, near Besançon, uh, he, they, they couldn't just shoot the famous naturalist painter. So they find him. Uh, it was in part his idea to knock down the Vendôme column. So they find him. He was supposed to pay out of his savings uh, uh, to restore the Vendôme column. Uh, I think he dies in 1877. So he doesn't live, live much longer. Gustave Courbet 
uh, after uh, after the commune. Another question. Hey, well, thanks a lot. Uh, that, that's a, a good moment to turn attention to a question from Bernadette Buckley, who's the convener of a Master of Arts in Art and Politics at Goldsmiths College in London, who asks you, uh, who thanks you for your talk and says, the image of Courbet posing with the statue of Napoleon I from the top of Vendome column is perhaps one of the most iconic images of the Communards revolt. Can you say something about the role of artists in shaping and communicating or consolidating these events? Oh my gosh, that's a that's a tough question. Um, that's a tough question because I mean, the the the, the impre- you know Manet was in Paris for for the Commune. Um, he has a very one of his uh, most famous lithographs um, is uh, uh, had it to put up, uh, but is of a, a dead man right next to the church, the Basilica of the Madeleine uh, in in Paris. And the church of the Madeleine during Bloody Week, lots of refugees, of political refugees, people are gonna be killed running for their lives went into the Madeleine and they said, well, they won't kill us in the Madeleine in a church. Well, they didn't. They hauled them out of the Madeleine, put them up against the wall next to the Madeleine and killed them there. And Manet, who wasn't particularly political, he did this lithograph of a body and the lithograph is called Civil War, La Guerre Civile. And is it a neutral lithograph? No, uh, because you can see that the man is wearing part of a National Guard uniform and there weren't enough full uniforms to go around. So you just got put on what part you could. And he's got, you can see along his body, you can see a white handkerchief. So he's obviously tried to wave the handkerchief saying, I want peace, don't shoot. Well, they shot and they killed him right there. And Manet's lithograph was banned in France in the early 1870s because it was seen as too provocative. Um, You know, I wish my late friend, Bob Herbert, the great historian of art, a dear friend who died uh, rather recently at age 91, was here uh, because he would have have more to say uh, about this, the the role of the Impressionists and the Commune. uh, The Impressionists didn't really paint politics. I hope that that's a fair enough thing to say, though, uh, you know, Renoir, who was the only really working class Impressionist, he was born in Limoges in 1841 and started life as a working life as a porcelain painter in Limoges industry. He was the most political of the Impressionists. Uh, but I think, if, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the Impressionists basically avoided the politics of, of the Paris uh, Commune. But there's something political about building big boulevards through, uh, uh, through uh, Paris Populaire, through Les Quartiers Populaires, and so, uh, uh, you know, for Renoir and, and others painting the boulevards, uh, that you could argue that that's uh, somewhat of a political act uh, as well. But I don't know how far I would take that. Of course, Pizarro was an anarchist, uh, but he's more characteristic of the later period. Okay, thanks. We have another question here from David Walter, who asks, do the events of Bloody Week mean, one, the death knell of the legacy of the French Revolution, two, the continuity of the terror, or three, the beginning of the dilution or corruption of progressive politics? Um, okay, well, that's three questions. Could you give me the first one again? So the death knell of the legacy of the French Revolution, continuity of terror, or beginning of Corruption and dissolution of continuity of state terror for number two, uh, 
rather, continuity of state terror. It's what I would say. 1851 is an example of state terror as well. Um, the the first, uh, what was the first one again? The death knell of the legacy of the French Revolution, continuity well, of terror. You know, or... the, the death knell of the, of the French Revolution. Well, you, you know, most of pe people would argue that that the the communard by the very existence uh, was a rep you know was a continuation of uh, of the radical republic. Uh, that is the, of the Jacobin Republic, uh, 1792 uh, to uh, 94, of the Radical Republic, the continuity of the Radical Republic. Uh, you know, Orthodox Marxist historians used to say, well, you got, it's different because you got real more proletarians. Well, these are not proletarians. These are not large scale. There were some factory workers in there, but you're not talking about a modern proletariat. Uh, but um, but there are continuities uh, on the left uh, that I think that are important. And what was the third? The beginning of the dilution or corruption of progressive politics. Well, I mean, there's it was the destruction, but it was the the what, it wasn't the commune that was destroying progressive politics. It, the, the commune was the embodiment of progressive politics. The destruction of progressive politics was was that by the so-called forces of order. Uh, that's exactly the case. Uh, the progressive politics of the commune would be seen, to repeat what I said earlier, by the presence of Louise Michel in those first uh, demonstrations, the first May Day marches. I think 1891 is the first of the May Day marches. Uh, the same day, by the way, that that French troops blew up, blew away the lives of working class adolescents who were carrying flowers, who were leading a march in a town called Formy, a small industrial town in the north, in the north of France. Thanks. So here's a question from uh, Ombre Barrier, who says, hello from Paris and thank you for the talk. I wanted to know to what extent did the commune inspire other revolutions of the 20th century? And do you see any similar expression of the left now, for example, in the Gilets Jaunes, perhaps? Uh, the Gilets Jaunes is, a, you know, uh, it, it's so complicated, uh, the Gilets Jaunes. Uh, no, because the Gilets Jaunes, there are lots of people on the left who are involved in the Gilets Jaunes, but lots of people on the far right also. Uh, I, I think that's a, it's a more complicated, you know, uh, situation. Um, um, I wouldn't say there's a continuity there. Um, what was the other thing? So the first part was, to what extent did the commune inspire other revolutions of the oh, 20th yeah. century? Well, there's a, there's a book by uh, a former Yale graduate student called Jay Bergman, who teaches at Central, Committee, uh, Central Committee, uh, Connecticut uh, on uh, Central Committee, I started to say, Central Connecticut uh, on the influence of the commune on, uh, on, on the Bolsheviks. Uh, and uh, Lenin uh, was well aware and referred frequently to the Paris Commune. Um, and, and, you know, the Bol yeah, you, could, you can make that, uh, uh, you know, there are lots of, of you know, the, the, the Commune did not have Soviet. Uh, you know, Soviet were councils of workers and, and, and sailors and soldiers that were, that dominated really the, the enormous Putilov uh, factory in 1917, which is the largest factory in the world with 35,000 employees. And the Soviet were, were, were terribly uh, important in that. Uh, you could you could make a, it'd be a little far-fetched. We could say, well, I mean, these are meetings and National Guard meetings in, in, in People's Paris were the equivalent of, of, of Soviet. Uh, you, you, could make, you could make that uh, case, but the, I guess, but the commune certainly uh, uh, inspired um, later attempts uh, to mobilize uh, or ordinary people. Um, you think of the great socialist leader, Jean Jaurès, who's, who's assassinated at the Café Croissant on the 31st of July, 1914. Uh, you know, the talk about the passing of an age. Uh, he was professor of, of, of philo, he was a, uh, a philosophy for professor before he became uh, elected to the Chamber of Deputies, 
and he wrote a, a long and extremely competent history of the French Revolution, but he referred frequently as he tried to unite uh, the forces of the left, and he succeeded in 1905 uh, to, to the Paris Commune. Uh, and the, so the Paris Commune did uh, influence uh, forces of the left and not just the Bolsheviks in the Russian Revolution uh, and uh, further on um, uh, other revolutionary socialists uh, in France in the years uh, following the Paris Commune and anarchists too. I mean, anarchists didn't want to take control of the state, which is what socialists did. Uh, anarchists wanted to abolish the state, uh, but they looked, uh, they had, the Paris Commune gave them every reason to want to abolish the state. The state for them was identified with state terror. And that was the ultimate experience of Bloody Week. It was state terror. Uh, that, that's for sure, absolutely for sure. So, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, obviously the Paris Commune was important in the left, and I already referred to its the influence on, on 1936 on the Popular Front, and and as, as people in 1968 uh, uh, looked back uh, as they burned cigarette holes into the beautiful chairs of the Odeon, uh, um, I would have been a Soissons Wittard had I been there, a 68er, but anyway, there we go. So here's another question um, from Bernadette Buckley at uh, Goldsmiths College. It's perhaps oh, related. The last to time I was in London, I gave a talk at Goldsmiths College. Uh, Carl Levy invited me there. Uh, well, there you are. So um, Bernadette Buckley asks, how do you see the historical legacy of the communards? Do you see any continuity between their resistance and that of, say, the stateless commune of the Rojava in northern Syria? I don't know enough about Syria to, to answer that question or to even uh, uh, to take it on. It's just, uh, you know, one of the things when there was the, the Arab Spring a few years ago, I was getting uh, calls, a lot of historians were uh, from newspapers and radio stations and this sort of thing, asking me uh, to compare what was happening in the Arab Spring uh, to what happened in Europe, not just in France in 18. 48, the revolution starts in, you know, in, in Sicily and in southern Italy, as, as many of you will know, and then in France, et cetera, et cetera. And I, but I just simply don't know if, enough to make any kind of uh, comment at all. So here's a question from Ewan Forrest. Um, so it's, a, I guess, a related question about the influence of the Paris Commune amongst Chinese communists. And the questioner refers to a PhD thesis by Zheng Hong Sing about that. God, I have absolutely uh, no idea. Mao was aware of the Paris Commune. Uh, that I remember from my days of taking Chinese history years ago at, uh, at, at Michigan, but uh, I don't know. I haven't really kept up with, with, um, with my Chinese uh, history, uh, let me see what to say. Um, one big difference, it would be in 1871, uh, it's one of those truisms that's true, is that much of rural France, not the south of rural France, which was radical, uh, unlike today, but northern and western rural France, the peasants were very conservative. There'd be no help to the Paris Commune from the peasants. The National Guard units that came and crushed them like grapes were full of peasants from Brittany. Um, that's different than Mao being able to transform uh, many peasants uh, into a revolutionary force. And if it had been said for centuries that peasants would not march more than a day away from their fields, uh, that certainly wasn't the case in Chinese a revolution. Um, but in the case of the French Revolution, if you think of the Vendée, that is the counter-revolution in the West, or the counter-revolution in southern Brittany, or in Poitou, or in other places, peasants were uh, a reactionary force. But in 1851, uh, the, the revolution to try to defend the republic against its being violated uh, by 
the thugs of Louis Napoleon, it was mostly peasants who did not speak French as their first language, who rose up in 18 departements to try to save the Republic. The revolution of 1851, the attempted revolution, the insurgency uh, in early December of 1851 was the largest national insurrection in 19th century France. My friend Ted Marganet has a fantastic book on that long, long ago, 1979, Princeton University Press called Peasants in Revolt, the French Insurrection of 1851. So it's interesting to compare. Uh, again, I, so I, have, I guess I've tried to compare uh, peasants in these two very different places. Okay, thanks. Well, I think just one last question. Um, I don't know if you're in a position to answer this question, but obviously the, the mayor of Paris had a series of commemorative events to mark the 150th anniversary. And I wonder whether you have any reflections on what they did there and what that says about the significance of these events today. I don't know because I wasn't there. Usually uh, four months is the most ever goes back by without my being in France. But um, because of the virus, I haven't been in France since last year. So I was not involved in those, uh, in those events. I don't know who spoke there. I don't know what uh, uh, transpired. Uh, the important thing would be the existence of such commemoration, uh, which suggests, which I already mentioned, uh, that, uh, that the, the commune does ha have a major uh, place in the historical narrative uh, of uh, how uh, even French governments view their own past. And I mentioned that even Sarkozy had, had paid homage to, uh, to the Paris Commune. But uh, more than that, I, I, I can't say. I wish I'd been uh, at the Hotel de Ville commemorating the Paris Commune and drinking more champagne, but I was not. Well, thank you very, very much, uh, Professor John Merriman. I mean, you've given us a rich palette of stories and you've placed them in the context, not just of the economic, social and class sort of context in which they took place, but also in the political context, the liberalisations that occurred in the couple of two or three years before, and also, of course, the international context, the Franco-Prussian War. And then in addition, I think we've heard from you fielding an incredible array of questions really about the legacy of these events and their ongoing significance, especially for people on the left. So thank you very much again uh, to Professor John Merriman and can you all sort of join me from a distance in thanking our speaker today. Merci, bonne soirée, a plus, bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.